I'd also like to add tonight to the yard site, the upcoming yard site for Friday, Efechana Bas Avroham. We will be dedicating to her as well. Shama should be good to better for her fifth yard site. On Chav Aleph Shvat. This Shabbos is Pashas Yisrael. Pashas Yisrael, of course, we all know is the Aseris Hadibris. Those who don't know it are only those people that don't fight for the Aliyah. But everybody else is fighting for the Aliyah, for the Aseris Hadibris. The Shishi knows very well this Shabbos, Pashas Yisrael has the Aseris Hadibris in it. So you got to be savvy for that point, so that you know what you're going to get. You know what to work, what's worth fighting for. Um, Asadis Sadibris, and of course, um, this Shabbos, of course, according to the calendar. Is as we mentioned before, Friday is Chav Alev Shvat, the Yerzeit of Chanavas of Avram, and Shabbos is therefore Chav Bei Shvat. Chav Bei Shvat, as we know, is the Yerzeit of the Rebbetzin Chayimushka. Yes, this, this we have. We have reached and welcome the Shluchis, all the Shluchis throughout the world that are, are, have arrived here to pay tribute and have the Kinnis Hashluchis in her honor, in her schus. We've told stories of the Rebetzin. There's not much, not much that goes around about the Rebetzin. The Rebetzin was a very, very private person. However, the few stories that made it out into the public, the famous story of her going for a ride with her driver, and I believe they were out on the island, on Long Island, she herself was a, worked as a librarian, a very, very intelligent woman. She used to write the talks and tales. And she edited the whole thing, or she just wrote the Nature, nature in Wonderland, um, which was quite brilliant. And it was the religious way of writing, I guess, National Geographics. She was out in the island for a ride, and she noticed a moving truck outside the house, and um, the whole family was standing there, which is very interesting. 
because they must have been very important people, they had a police escort. So something didn't look right. She asked the driver to go by, go over there. He drove over there, and he said, she said, then go find out what's happening. The driver came back and said, apparently the family was behind rent, they're being evicted. Hence the police presence, the marshal, and the um, totally uh, moving truck. They're taking this stuff away. They're going to put it in storage somewhere. Obviously, the Rebbe had no idea who these people were. I'm not getting up. She sent back her driver and said, "Find out how much they're talking about. What's the arrears?" And he came back with the amount. The Rebetzin immediately wrote a check for the whole amount. Okay. And they drove off. And the family was able to stay in their home. The Rebetzin was once standing in the library, which is next door to... Oh, no, the library. Sorry. Maybe she was upstairs by her sister in the apartment. The sister, the Shag's wife, used to live upstairs, 770. And she was standing visiting her sister. And she noticed there was a bacha there. And she asked the bacha why the bacha didn't walk around with such long hair. It was apparently a fad. In the olden days, The real Siddish Abacham didn't take haircuts too often. <laughs> and um, she asked the Bacham, what's going on here? Why the Bacham has such long hair? And the Bacham told her, because the Rebbe hasn't taken a haircut yet. As long as the Rebbe doesn't take a haircut, they won't take a haircut. They figure there must be something Kabbalistic behind it, or whatever it might be. This is called Mimosh, actually. The mimicking of the Rebbe. She turned to the Bach and she said, Halavai. They should smile at a fellow Jew with the love, love and warmth that my husband smiles to another Jew. Imitate him that way. Better than imitating his long hair. The Rebbe's hair, obviously, was not a fashion statement. Fact was, the Rebbe did not have time to take a haircut. And hence, there were times the Rebbe's hair was very, very, very long. From the back of his hat. Till the appointment was made, till the barber came to the Rebbe, etc. <laughs> the barber used to come to the Rebbe's house, or to the office, I'm not sure. I can't tell you either way. I don't know. Hmm? The tailor, Mr. Hans, used to come to the Rebbe's house to make the Rebbe's kapatas. 
to measure the Rebbe for the Kapotas. There's Mr. Hans Al Rashalom, Julius Hans. Obviously, an expert tailor had many different Rebbes as clientele. Interesting to note, though, his little place on Staten Street in East Side, Lower East Side, was frequently visited by all these other different Rebbes. However, to the Lubavitch Rebbe, he used to come himself. When asked, Someone wanted to obviously hear him say that the devil was holier or special than anyone else, etc. So when he was asked, why does he go to the Lubavitch Rebbe and all the other Rebbes have to come to him? He said, I'll tell you very simply, all the other Rebbes call for appointments, their Shamas calls, their Sexton calls for appointments. The Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe calls. <laughs> so that's a personal issue. There she calls, I come. Very, very interesting music. Um, when Sikhus Beit Sheva first started here in the streets, I believe it was the second year of Sikhus Beit Sheva, I was living still on Montgomery Street on the corner, not the corner, but in between the corner, and this, I was on the second building, there were a bunch of stores, there's a shul actually, a store, a shul, and on top were apartments, and I used to live, I, it was one, one floor apartment, I used to live in the middle apartment, stop at a store, so the Simchus Beis Shea was right outside our window, the dancing was right outside of Montgomery Street. And we had a little sukkah. An interesting little sukkah that we had. It was four walls built from brick because it was in between our apartment and the next door's apartment. Like a little patio. You had to climb through the window to get into the sukkah. And uh, we put schach on top. Um, the location was a good one. So people would come knocking on the door for a drink. They'd come upstairs for a drink. They'd come upstairs for a lachayim. So it turned into Fabrengens. Rabbi Groner Shlita would come upstairs to Fabreng. And many other dignitaries that would come up and go climb in through my window to come to Fabreng. And it was a little embarrassing to say, but they literally used to eat us out of house and home. It used to be cleaned out. And at one point, my wife literally had to keep baking during the course of the evening to be able to supply the demand in the sukkah. Needless to say, the bottles bottles of liquor and drink that was there in the sukkah probably could line up from my house till 770. Anyway, the point of the story, there was one of the Bachrim that had come up to the sukkah and saw the action that was going on there. And he was a, what's called a Heizbacher by the Rebetzin. He used to come to help out the Rebetzin's house. In the Rebbe in the Rebetzin's house. Mishadis. And he came to her that day, 
And she asked, so how is the Simchas Beis HaSheva? And he said, very, very nice, beautiful dancing. And he said, he mentioned to her, and there's a family, Hecht, that has an open house policy. The door is unlocked. People are coming upstairs, and they're eating in their sukkah whole night long. The chayims, the fabringing, the singing. It's beautiful. She said, really? She went to the kitchen. She had a blueberry pie that someone had brought to Sabbath to the Rebison. And she gave it to him and said, please bring it to them. I want to have my hishtatzvah. I want to have participation in such a great mitzvah. Well, needless to say, the pie didn't last very, very long. Especially when people found out it was from the Rebetzin. And um, we weren't the type of people to freeze it and to save it for future. The Rebetzin wanted people to eat it in our sukkah. And that's what it happened with that blueberry pie. But to show this little type of person, the Rebetzin was very concerned about other people, their well-being, their welfare, Many, many stories are told, actually, although as quiet as she was, of people, families that came to the Rebetzin and asked to get a bracha from the Rebbe for children, for this, for that, and the Rebetzin sought to intervene for them. So therefore, this Shabbos is the apropos Shabbos to have the Kines HaShluchais, where all the Shluchais from all the, throughout the world come together and get inspired and get revitalized and understand, when we talk about the shluchas, the emissaries, their messiah's nefesh is greater than that of their husbands, obviously. Kaysema the Beisakiv is tagging the Bnei Yisrael. The Beisakiv referring, of course, to the women. As all women are keres habayis, the shlucha as well has that very same responsibility. The shlucha is the one that's serving at the table, while the shliach is running the ship at the table. The shlucha is the one that cooks and prepares for all the people, the surprise guests that come in. And my own daughter in Geneva, Stark, has a constant, constant full house. People that are in Geneva for Shabbos, for the weekend, for whatever it might be, for the week, they go skiing, and they need a good kosher meal, a Shabbos meal, or whatever it might be. And then on top of that, they have to raise their children. Baruch Hashem in Geneva, there is a, a pretty decent maizid. So the children are learning in a nice environment. But then at night, she'll have people calling to have to go to the mikveh. I shall have to take to the mikveh. So it's a never-ending, never rest, no rest for them whatsoever. So although the shlichas is known by the shliach's name, that woman behind the curtain is the one that's really pulling the strings and that's really making things happen. So when they come now to get revitalized, to take on kechis, It's a big step. It's a big thing. And 
Shem should help Takali Shul come safely, go safely, and have an enjoyable and a pleasant time here. Now let us focus back on Pasha's Yisrael. A beautiful, beautiful, full Pasha. Short, but packed. The Aseres Hadibris. Yisrael's arrival to Mesha. Of course, the wonderful world of WhatsApp has its fun also. Yisrael tells Mesha, I, Yisrael, your father-in-law has arrived, I'm coming to you. So of course, for a little bit of humor on WhatsApp, where else are you going to find humor? Yisrael's message to Mesha is a very exciting news. I, your father-in-law, I am coming to you. But you know what? I'm coming myself. Your mother-in-law is not here. <laughs> Terrible. Where was she? Yesterday? She was home. That's why he goes, the Israel leaves and he goes home to, to convert the rest of his family. It says. So this is Dani Chesan Chayisrei Boi But on a deeper sense, I saw it recently, I thought it said in the name of the Samach Tzedek. However, when I was looking for it today, I see it brought down from a total different source. And he says, Ani Chaysencha Yisrael is the acronym, Rashi Tevis, of the words Ani Chaysencha Yisrael Aleph Ches Yud the acronym of Ochi the word Ochi meaning my brother he brings it down from the base Yaakov I don't understand how okay he should have just said Chesencha Bo'alecha your father was coming to you what is the Ani Yisrei? Why does he add this? So according to the Rizal, Yisrei originally was Kayin. Came from the Bnei Kani. But not only came from the Bnei Kani, but he was a reincarnation of Kayin. The original Kayin, Adam and Chava had Kayin and Hevel. And Moshe was Hevel. Tzipera, the wife of Mesha, was originally Hevel's twin sister. Since Cain killed Hevel, so that he could marry her. Cain killed Hevel so he could marry the twin sister. So the first letters here, Ani Chesenche Yisrael, are the acronym of the word Ochi, my brother. Yisrael informed Mesha that he was a Gilgal, a reincarnation of Cain. Since Mesha was the reincarnation of Hevel, they were brothers. 
Why? To atone for the crime of killing him. And taking away his twin sister and bringing, him to, bringing back to him, Tzipporah. Therefore Yisrael says, he, I'm bringing to you Tzipporah. Let's focus a little bit on Matan Tera. Tera tells us the Pasuk Vayered Hashem Al Har Sinai. The Almighty came down on Har Sinai. Rashi says, Yochel Yered Olav Mamish. I would think perhaps he came down directly on the, uh, physically on the mountain. Talmud Leimar, it says in the Pasuk, Mina Shemayi Debarti Machem, I spoke from heaven. Melamed comes to teach us He took the heavens and he placed them over the mountain like the sheet on a bed. This words are very strange. If we just say Melamed Shalach and Shemayim they brought down the clouds, what it was that was on top of them. So we understand. What is he going on to explain about the putting it as a sheet on a bed? Maybe, perhaps we can explain this. What is the whole Pasha going on about? The fact that God came down on Hasinai and made the mountain itself sanctified, made the mountain holy. And therefore it says, He Be very careful, nobody come up the mountain. Nobody touch it anywhere. No hand should touch on it. It was sanctified. You'll test, give testimony to your children saying, Put boundaries around this mountain and sanctify it. If the Almighty spoke bin Shomayim, as we said, from heaven, and only the Rachim Shomayim were on Har Sinai, how did this Kedusha actually take place? So therefore Rashi adds that the Shomayim were not placed only on Har Sinai, but they were put out like a, like a sheet on a bed. When you put the sheet on the bed, there's no differentiation between the bed and the sheet. Oh no. There's no separation between the bed and the sheet. Not in.
come on. So therefore, the bed and the sheet become one. No. So when you make this Matthias, you make it into one Matthias, one essence. So much so that even the sheets no longer have any value of their own. There's something that's part of the bed. They're bedding. And the same is by Hasinai. HaKadosh Baruch Hu made up the mountain in just such a fashion that the Shemayim and Hasinai were made with one. And the Shemayim did not leave anything as a separate entity. But it was like one part of the mountain. One part of the mountain, and therefore making the spiritual, the holiness of the Shekhinah became on this mountain itself. The mundane mountain became holy. But we still need to understand what is Rashi answering what seems to be a contradiction here with the previous Pasuk. If the Pasuk here is not understood, then he should have explained it in the Pasuk before. Why is he explaining it only over here? Perhaps again we understand this because it says before that, Oshan in chapter nineteen, verse eight, it says the Hasinai was totally inflamed, engulfed in flames. So if the whole mountain was engulfed in this smoke, but didn't set in fire. It's a shock. Because if fire came down on it, fire was on the mountain. The mountain should have gone on fire. Well, actually, the truth is the mountain was in the desert, and the fact there was any vegetation was miraculous as well. So this, therefore, is the question of Rashi. The Almighty comes down at the Hasinai. We don't have the question what it said before. What it says here brings about the question, how is it possible that Yochel Yeridol of Mamish, is it possible that the Almighty literally came down on the mountain? Because if it did, why didn't it go on fire? So to strengthen this, Rashi brings down what it says before, that I spoke from the heavens really. As WhatsApp was floating around today, 
a video went around of a, I'm not sure, a Pelisha, Hungarian Hasid, telling a story. Somebody once came to the Rebbe, not a Lubavitcher Hasid, and the Rebbe asked him, what is the most important organ in your body? And the fellow answered, my heart. So I said, where's your heart? She so he points to his chest, here. He says, where there? So my left side. He says, your heart's on the left side. We know everything is always on the right. Everything the Ebesha refers to, all the Kedushan, everything, spirituality, always comes from the right side. Why is the heart on the left side? Guy says, I don't know. So the Rebbe said, because the heart is an important organ, yes. But the heart is for your friend, not for you. And therefore, when you're facing your friend, it's to his right. When it talks about the Mizbeach, at the end of the parasha, Pasik says, do not go up on steps onto my Mizbech, onto my altar, because they didn't wear pants, obviously, they wore robes, and it shouldn't be seen under the undergarment, the under, what's underneath the garment. So therefore, this is a Kalvachema. If you're talking about a stone which is in heaven, which is from Daimim, which has no Das, is still careful about the embarrassment of Rotator. Since they have a need, you should not do any kind of embarrassment with them. In that case, says the Tater, your friend, a fellow Jew, whether he's your friend or not, he's not your friend, it's your fault. The fellow Jew, which is a fellow friend, the Jew, a fellow Jew, which is a friend, is in the format of the Almighty God, and he is careful, he doesn't want to be embarrassed. How much more so? You're not allowed to embarrass him. Many places brought down. The reason for this, Sadibris. I explained also simple laws, what seem to be mundane laws between man and his friend, not killing, not stealing, etc. To tell us that also, to teach us also the mitzvahs that are between man and God, as a one thing, Anechi Hashem Aleichecha. And therefore, by doing them, by keeping these mitzvahs, not just because of their reasons, 
but because this is what God wanted, then we perhaps can say, this is what's hinted here in the words of Rashi. To explain the reason why one needs to be so careful not to embarrass a fellow Jew. Because it's not only common sense, you don't embarrass, you're not embarrass another person. The Mishnah says, No matter who the person is, no matter what the person did, nobody has a right to embarrass them. So common sense dictates that. The mere fact that he's the Muslim, and therefore, if this negligence of not being respectful to your fellow Jew is lacking then you're also lacking the respect for your Creator. So therefore we find that also the mitzvahs that are between a person and his friend need to be more immaculately kept as are the ones between the person and God. And since Meruba Midateva most people have basically good midas, we understand from this that also the Avas Yisrael and the covet of a friend that has to be from Avas Hashem and covet of Shemayim, which is awakened because Shemayim upon him, upon him, upon him. The Avas HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael, that the Almighty looks at you the same way you look at him. Same love and the same affection that you show for a fellow Jew, that you show for God, therefore that God shows it to you. And he lifts up the person and the horn, the cat in Yisrael. Fellow once came to the Mayor Premishlana. He was not a chassid at all. And as a matter of fact, he was an antagonist called Snagid. <laughs> but when desperate measures are needed, desperate measures are taken. And he was desperate. He had no parnasa. And although he was considered a Talmud Chacham, people respected him on the street, they waited for him for Krishna or Janessa. They gave him CC. Whoa. But still in all, he didn't have money. And it was below his dignity to go collect money. So he came into the Tremeh Premishana. And he figured he'll dazzle the Meir Premishana with his genius understandings and words of Taylor. These were called back. And Rabbi will say, I'll arrange for you to have money. And he was giving a real phenomenal oration giving, delivering a speech. 
And the mayor was sitting there blank, a blank stare in his face. Finally, the mayor says to him, You know what? I can't deal with you. I can't do anything for you really right now. My pipe that I'm smoking, by the Washington, by a lot of such rebbes in the olden days, when they would have to do big miracles, they would have like this type of pipe. For the pipe I'm smoking, I need a needle. I need a pin. Go out, get me a pin, and we'll talk. And I was flabbergasted. Me? You know how respectable I am? You're sending me out to do a menial job like that? He saw he had nothing to talk about. He went out. And he went one place to the other to the other. Nobody had. The only place you're going to get it, but it's Smith. Smith had to make you one. He went from one Smith to the next, and everybody was busy. They had no time to do it. Finally, someone told him at the outskirts of town, there's a Smith. Go ask him. Travels to the outskirts of town. Sees a broken down hut, practically. And, um, comes inside. Place is not looking very good. He tells the old man, I need a needle for the pipe. Oh, I can make that for you. Fires up the fire. And he starts to take out the metal and the anvil and clops and zets. And he's talking. Talking about himself, talking about what happened. I used to be very young. When I, was, I started as a smith. I was very young. I was very strong. I opened on the outside of town because I didn't want to affect people with my smoke and with the banging of the anvil, the noise and everything else. So I opened on the outskirts of town so that people shouldn't be affected. The uh, environment, as very as an environmentalist, you know. He went green. He was going green. And um, eventually... Younger guys came in. I got older. Younger Smiths came to town. They were not as courteous as I am. They opened in the center of the town. And unfortunately, my business dissipated. It started to dwindle, dwindle. In the interim, he says, other tzadahs that he had, his wife died, his son died, his only son. In a fire, they had fire. Sad story. And this fellow, mm. who was actually held himself a very respectable fellow, would never waste time sitting and listening to a goy telling him his life story. He wouldn't waste time from, from Taylor to talk to goy, period. And here he's standing here listening. And he's starting to feel human. He's connecting to this guy. A guy. But he's connecting to him. And as we said before, Kemayim upon him, upon him. 
it reflected from him. And the guy felt, you know, this guy's a real listener. He's listening to me. And as he worked, he's told him and he's talked to him. And he poured his heart out to him. Told him his whole life story. And when he finished, he told him, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I have a lot of money. I have a lot of money. I have thousands of gold coins. But I don't want anyone to know. I never told anybody. Or else everybody would be here, my best friends, be my chum chums, because they're waiting for my money. I don't need that. I don't need such friendships. As, as he was working, he told him this. I know when he finished the work, he was giving the needle system. You know what? Let me show you. He starts to pull on the heavy anvil. And he's pulling it and pulling it and he pulls it away from the floor. And he opens the floorboard underneath. And there's a box. And he opens the box, and lo and behold, there's a literal treasure in there. Mind-boggling. Closes it back up, and he says, listen, nobody has to know this. To you and me. But I like talking to you. He says, he wanted to pay him for the work. He says, you know what, don't pay me, don't pay me, don't pay me. On condition. Come back and we'll talk again tomorrow. I like talking to you. Fellas, I had a choice. I said, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. Divinely, he got back to Premishlan. And it was evening. And he wasn't going to be able to go to, to the mayor again to talk to him, to show him, to bring him his pin. So, okay, I'll wait for the morning. I'll go into the mayor in the morning. He gets up in the morning. And he's walking in the street. I don't know if he's on his way to the mikvah or not. I can't tell you. But he sees a bunch of goyim standing together. Apparently this is the uh, burial society for the goyim. And they're talking and he hears the mention of this guy's name, the smith. So he starts to listen. And they're saying... Smith died with no money. Now they got to sell his house, you got to sell his tools and everything, so they have enough money to cover the funeral. Immediately, this person understood the and he ran over and he said, I'll buy the whole estate. And he bought the whole estate, and they signed over his paperwork to him. He paid for the funeral, and he went there by himself, and he dug up his whole treasure, and he understood now the work of Rameh Premishlana, how he couldn't tell him go there, but he indirectly sent him there, and thereby accomplishing, fulfilling what this fellow was requesting from him. Asaras Adibris mm-hmm. start off before the Asaras Adibris Pelsic tells us Hashem says Vayedaber alikim is called Advarim Eile Leimer 
the Ebesha spoke these words, saying, we are children, the word lamer, we would translate as, this is how you should repeat it. Now we know that by Matan everyone was there. Not only was everyone there, all the past, present, and future Nishamas of Eden were by Matan So why does Hashem say, Lamer, in the future, to tell us to repeat this? Who are we repeating this to? Yes. Another question is, The Almighty says, I am God, your God, that took you out of Egypt. Now, <coughs> granted, no slave ever escaped Egypt. And it was quite a task. Hashem took them out of Egypt. But realistically speaking, I am God, your God, that created the world. Makes sense. I am God, your God, that only created, took you out of Egypt. It's 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 a minor fact compared to taking the Eden out of creating the world. Elamai. I shall see him as Mitzrayim was a fresh thing to them. David is just talking to this very same generation that he just took out of Mitzrayim. It had personal meaning for each and every person at the time. But what does it have to do with us? When we read this, we read the Sadhus, we learn about the Torah that was given on Sinai. Why isn't it gay to us that the Jews were given by God took out of Mitzrayim, where it should be God that created the world? Mitzrayim can also be read Mitzarim. Boundaries, limitations. Taylor gives the person the capacity, the capability to rise up above any limitations, any physical limitations. So Hashem is telling the Jews that Hashem is giving it the Taylor. He gives you the ability, you should be able to take yourself out of Mitzrayim physically spiritually and physically, to take yourself out of your mitzvah, to study Teda, observe mitzvahs, and a Jew has complete potential and power to control each and everything. So why does he use the word lamer? Who does he want this to be repeated to? When it says, this lamer, it said before the mention of the Aserah Sadibis, the Ten Commandments. 
Now the Ten Commandments, the Zichim Magad explains that the Ten Commandments coincide or allude to the Ten Utterances that the Almighty made when He created the world. The Ten Statements. So accordingly, when you say Lamer, Vaidaber Lamer, this comes before the Asaras Adibris. It's a directive to draw from the word Vayedaber. The Teda, which is Vayedaber, which we speak, the Ten Commandments, into Lamer, the Asara Maimores, that the Almighty said by creating the world. How do we apply this to our lives? The Magad's explanation is teaching us we should not compartmentalize our lives. Separating Teda, holy aspects, from mundane. We need to interact with the Asara Maimaras, with the creation of the world. The day-to-day of our physical lives must be permeated with a Teda attitude and framed by a Teda lifestyle. Even the most mundane activities of a Jew must be guided not by attitudes of a secular world, by an outlook that reflects our attachment to Asadis Hadibis, the eternal Teda. The Friedrich Rebbe found himself in many different places during the course of his life. At one point he had arrived in an inn by a certain town. Upon arriving in that inn, everybody heard about him, everybody knew about the Rebbe, and everybody clamored and lined up to come get a bracha to get some advice from the Rebbe. One such constituent, shall we call them, was an elderly woman with her son. The son, Rahman al-Hassan, had tasted the waters of the world and basically wanted nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. And she, he, but his mother slept him here and he says, okay, listen, if I can give her one more shot to calm her down and to get her off my case, I'll go. And he comes before the Rebbe and he sits down and he says, Okay, Rebbe, give it your best shot. What you got? What are you going to tell me that all the other quote-unquote Rebbes that my mother already slept me to haven't already told me? So Rebbe asked him, Zagma, my kind, tell me, my child. You put on Phil? He says, No. Did you keep Shabbos? He says, no. You keep kosher? He says, no. He says, okay, I'm out of here. You're, you're the same clown everybody else was. He says, hold on, hold on, let me tell you a story. Says, okay, I'll let you tell me a story. And then it begins. 
There was a mathematician who was a math professor in a college, in universities. This mathematician, one day as he was teaching his class, was like struck by lightning with a brilliant, brilliant theory, mathematical theorem. And he couldn't wait to finish the class so that he can go home and start to bring it to realization this brilliance that just struck him. And lo and behold, he gets home and he starts to work on this brilliant theory. And as he's working on it, he literally could not sleep the night. And he came back the next day to discuss it with his peers, with the head of the math department. And everybody was indeed impressed and intrigued by the theory. When he saw how great, how brilliant everybody is telling him he is, he decided he's taking a hiatus, he's taking off time from teaching until he does this theory. And he took off a month, two months, three months, and wrote and wrote and checked and rewrote and rechecked. Finally, after a year, he was complete. The theorem was there. It was brilliant. And he checked it over, inside out. And it was to perfection. And he took his entire manuscript, tens and hundreds of pages that he had, and he put them in a neat pile to take them to the printer. It's a beautiful summer day. He decided that he needs fresh air. He's going to leave this on his desk. He's going to go for a walk first. And after his walk, he'll take it to the printer. No. What should I tell you, says the Rebbe. He came back from his walk. It was a gorgeous day. And lo and behold, his papers were scattered all over the room. And there was a line across each page. He started to shake, to tremble. It seemed that someone had come here and found his theorem flawed and because it was flawed he marked it across a line each page and tossed it all over the place a year's life work that he had checked through and through is ruined he fell to the ground faint the thump brought the attention of the neighbors they came running in, they saw him lying there listless on the floor, they called the doctor, the doctor came in, smelling salts, whatever it needed, 
the man woke up and saw the papers again and he fainted. And each time they woke him up, the doctor saw he was falling deeper and deeper into a depression and it was affecting his heart worse and worse. But each time that he realized that his papers were not perfect, this is destroying him. And he's lying there unconscious and the doctor whispers into his ear, It was a cat. It was a cat came into your room through an open window. Its tail got messed up, got caught in the ink. And the ink made a line over every page. The tail made a line on every page. It was only a cat. Which means to say that he's not disproved and that this is indeed genius. And the man woke up and said, it was only a cat? Ah... And with this, the Fidig Rebbe finished his story. The fellow looks at the Fidig Rebbe like he fell off a roof. He had two heads. What was that all about? Fidig Rebbe said to him, My friend, you're disclaiming Rahman al-Islam Teda. You're saying that Teda has no validity, Chas has no, you don't understand anything that's worth in that data, and there's nothing actually worth in the data. You're not any better than the cat with the tail going across the data. You understand nothing in the data. Don't come to me, the professor that wrote and that understands and learns and knows the beauty and the living life of this data, don't come to me like a cat and put, try to put marks in your tail. Excuse me, the man was shocked by the lesson, by the message, and he indeed turned around and became a chassid, the tshuva, and became a chassid. And the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin, the Kitzurana Sheikh Neofar, the Heim Beresham, should take us out of Golas tonight, and that we should take a celebrate of Beishvat as a Yomtiv in Yerushalayim, in Akedish, and all the Shluchas will not complain, says the Rebbe. The Mashiach will come out of Shabbos, the only one reason he won't come out of Shabbos is because he doesn't want to disturb the Akedis Abayis while she's cooking. But the Rebbe says, the woman doesn't mind. Zola Kumin, he says. The woman says, let him come. I'll burn my food, or I'll have my food raw, it doesn't matter. Let Mashiach come on Friday, whenever it is. And therefore, even all the shluchas that spent hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars to come here for the Kinnis HaShluchas, will be Mavata, as the Rebbe, and the Rebbetzin will take us to the Shalayim, Merakedesh, this very Shabbos, Shabbat, Shalom to all.